0: Welcome to Wrestling With Theology. My name is Doug Minton. I am your host. I am the pastor at Redeemer Evangelical Lutheran Church in Robbinsdale, Minnesota, as well as a lifelong wrestling fan. Wrestling With Theology wrestles with the history of pro wrestling as well as the theology of the Lutheran Church. Wrestling on television wouldn't be complete without the announced team. There were many great announced teams throughout wrestling history but there were typically two-man teams a play-by-play commentator and a color commentator these two worked in tandem the play-by-play commentator would describe the wrestling action knowing the names of the holds and the backgrounds of each wrestlers gimmick the greatest play-by-play announcers in wrestling history were Lance Russell Gordon Soley and Jim Ross the color commentator would typically have a heel bent They would verbally spar with the play-by-play announcer to help generate heat for the feuds and the matches. The greatest color commentators of all time were Jerry Lawler, Bobby Heenan, and Dan the Dragon Wilson from NWA Wildside. On occasion, you had times where you had two play-by-play commentators who did very well. Most notably, when Dusty Rhodes put Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone as the Announced team for the first two or three Clash of the Champions. That worked great, but most times you need both the play by play and the color commentator. And of course, the greatest uh, announced team ever was, of course, the Spanish announced team, whose table seemed to always get destroyed at every WWF pay per view. Coming up on Green Friday Wrestling this week, we have Mid South's WrestleFest 85 from July 28th, 1985, being posted at 7 o'clock. Among the matches here, you have John Nord versus Brickhouse Brown, Ted DiBiase versus Jake the Snake Roberts, Dutch Mantell versus Butch Reed, Ric Flair versus Dusty Rhodes, Bill Watts, Hacksaw, Jim Duggan, and Dick Murdoch versus Kareem Muhammad, Kahmala, and Skandar Akbar. Great, wonderful matches from this great promotion If you have the opportunity to see it, I strongly suggest you see it. Now we move into this week's wrestling profile. When Nelson Scott Simpson graduated from Robbinsdale High School in 1977, who would have thought that he would end up becoming the Russian nightmare Nikita Koloff? In high school, he wanted to play pro football. After graduating high school, he played football at Golden Valley Lutheran College and then at Moorhead State University. Injuries while playing football kept him from advancing past the college level. In 1984, Simpson was preparing to try out for the USFL, but Road Warrior Animal, who attended nearby Irondale High School, New Brighton, called him to try out for pro wrestling instead. Animal got Simpson, Road Warrior Hawk, Rick Rude, and Barry Darso hooked up with Eddie Sharkey of Pro Wrestling America to be trained as wrestlers. When he showed up, In Jim Crockett Promotions, Simpson was named Nikita Koloff and teamed with his uncle Ivan and Don Kernodal, the original American turncoat. Koloff won his first wrestling match in 13 seconds. Most of his initial matches in 1984 were very brief while he learned more about wrestling from Ivan and Kernodal. For much of his early career, Simpson spoke in very broken English to help give credence to the Russian gimmick. Once Crockett was pleased with Simpson's progress as a wrestler, Ivan and Nikita turned on Kernodal and brought in Barry Darso as Crusher Khrushchev. At this time, the Koloffs held both the NWA World Tag Team titles and the World Six-Man Tag Team titles. In 1985, Ivan and Nikita also feuded with the Road Warriors both in the NWA and the AWA. In 1985, Simpson's improvements in the ring got him his first big singles break when he challenged Ric Flair for the world heavyweight title at the Great American Bash. This match cemented Nikita Koloff as a superstar in his own right in Jim Crockett promotions. He went on to feud with Magnum T.A. for the bulk of the summer of 1986. In the Great American Bash tour that year, Koloff and T.A. fought in a series of seven matches to crown the U.S. heavyweight champion. On August 17, 1986, the seventh and deciding match saw Nikita defeat Magnum with several run-ins from Ivan and Khrushchev. The next month saw Nikita unify his title with the national heavyweight title held by Wahoo McDaniel. In October 1986, Magnum TA had his car accident that ended his career. With that, and since Gorbachev was growing in popularity in the U.S., Dusty Rhodes, head booker for Jim Crockett Promotions, felt that the days of the evil Russian heels was coming to an end. Rhodes booked Nikita to turn face and feud with the Four Horsemen, creating the awesome tag team of the Russian Nightmare and the American Dream on October 24, 1986. Nikita then went after Flair's World Heavyweight title, almost winning it several times before the rest of the Horsemen bailed Flair out. Koloff kept the U.S. heavyweight title for the first half of 1987, feuding with Paul Jones' army, especially Uncle Ivan, and the Four Horsemen. Koloff and Rhodes won the Crockett Cup tournament that year. As the Summer's Great American Bash Tour got underway, Koloff lost the title to Lex Luger. Nikita's feud with the Horsemen came to a head with the War Games, the match beyond. This feud would go on to be PWI's feud of the year in 1987 and give Koloff the title Most Inspirational Wrestler of the Year. In 1988, Koloff began losing interest in pro wrestling because his wife was suffering from Hodgkin's disease. She died in the summer of 1989. Nikita would stay out of wrestling business with the exception of a few guest appearances. In late 89, Koloff came back to wrestle in the AWA in its dying days, and then in Herb Abrams' version of the UWF. In 91, Koloff came back to WCW and attacked U.S. heavyweight champion Luger, stating that Luger had stolen the belt from him four years earlier and he'd come to take it back now. Koloff would go on to feud with Luger and Sting until August before disappearing from the wrestling scene again. He reappeared in February 92 to save Sting from an attack by the Dangerous Alliance. He again competed in the War Games match that May against the Dangerous Alliance. His wrestling career ended in 1992 in a match against Vader, where he suffered numerous injuries. After wrestling, Koloff became a born-again Christian in 1993 and runs his own ministry, which has its own promotion as an outreach. Koloff came back to wrestling in 2003 with TNA as the masked Mr. Wrestling IV, attacking Dusty Rhodes. He continues to be seen on the Lifetime Network's reality series Preacher's Daughters. Over the course of his career, Simpson held the U.S. heavyweight title once, national heavyweight title once the world six-man tag team titles four times the world tag team titles twice the world television title for both the nwa and the uwf once kolov's highest ranking in the pwi 500 came in at number 17 in 1992 pwi ranked his tag team with ivan as number 64 of all time they also ranked him as 113th of all time in 2003. This will probably be redone in 2023, as that will be PWI's 50th anniversary. And so we'll see where he ends up there. I'll be back in a moment with our look at the Apostolic Fathers. fathers. Many Christian documents circulated towards the end of the apostolic age of 70 to 100 AD. St. Luke references them in his gospel. Some wrote gospels, other wrote epistles and homilies to congregations set up by the apostles or their disciples. In some places these were placed alongside some or all of the New Testament scriptures. These writings were divided into three categories, accepted, disputed, and rejected. The accepted writings were those writings which were undoubtedly apostolic in origin. Not all of these writings were written by an apostle, but the author had a close personal connection with an apostle, for example Mark with Peter and Luke with Paul. The disputed books had a questionable origin. Some were eventually placed into the New Testament canon, like Ephesians, 2nd Peter, 2nd and 3rd John and Jude. Some were left out of the canon, such as the teaching First Clement, Barnabas, Shepherd of Hermas, Ignatius, and Polycarp. The contents of the rejected books proved that they were not of apostolic origin. Therefore, they were never accepted as part of the scriptures. The apostolic fathers fall into the disputed category. These writings were accepted in some parts of the church, but not others. They are not on the same level as scripture. However, their use in some regions gives us the ability to study them as documents reflecting the attitudes and customs of the Church in the generations after the Apostles. This monthly series of studies on the Apostolic Fathers is not intended to persuade Christians to throw away centuries of tradition concerning these writings. Christians who seek to understand early Church history may find these writings useful. These studies will have a clear text with thoughtful commentary that hopefully will one day manifest itself in a written book. Uh, These are not designed to give a full history and interpretation of each document. It is just my hope to increase Christian faith and knowledge. The Apostolic Father documents. uh, The Didache, or the teaching, was written about 75 or 80 in Antioch as a catechism. In 95 AD, the church in Rome sent a letter to the church in Corinth under the auspices of Bishop Clement. The Epistle of Barnabas comes about the year 100, with Ignatius and Polycarp writing their epistles about 115. Both of these men were disciples of St. John the Apostle. Then you have the Shepherd of Hermas, Uh, Wrapping things up in about 120 with an apocalyptic view of visions and commandments and parables very similar to that of Ezekiel, Daniel, and Revelation. It is my hope that find insight into the early church as we all seek to have the same faith as the apostles, As we seek to have the apostolic faith, we look to documents like these to see what it was that the generation or two after the apostles lived and preached and died, held as the church. And you'll see there are many things that still hold true today that were back then, as should be as followers of the one true faith. The Didache is the first of the books of the apostolic fathers. Didache is simply the Greek word for teaching. Uh, The teaching is not scripture. It gives some insights into the mindsets and practices of the late first century church. Many non-denominational churches strive to proclaim the apostolic church's practice and teaching. The teaching illustrates their practice and teaching in a contemporary light, in a catechetical fashion. Several fragments are available in Greek, Coptic, and Georgian. The only complete manuscript is found in the Jerusalem Codex of about 1056. This was discovered in 1873, and the first publication of the text of the Didache was in 1912 by Kirsop Lake. The teaching was probably written about 75 or 80 AD. Chapter 7 through 15 show that the church still had wandering prophets going from town to town. These wandering prophets were the apostles' disciples. There isn't the universal establishment of the bishop's office yet. When Ignatius writes his epistles about 115, there seems to be an established bishop in each of the receiving congregations that he writes his epistles to. So as we turn to the text of the Didache, chapter 1, verse 1. There are two ways, one of life and one of death, and there is a great difference between the two ways. The teaching is most widely known for its teaching of the Two Ways Doctrine. There are two ways to live and move and have your being in this world. There is the way of life, following Jesus Christ. There is the way of death, ignoring Jesus Christ. Simply stated, Jesus is the great difference. The first four chapters of the teaching detail the way of life, the life of the saved. There are numerous quotations from the Gospels, especially St. Matthew's. These quotations firmly ground the teaching as an ancient catechism. It does not follow the pattern of questions and answers, but it proclaims the church's true doctrines. Scriptural quotations form a detailed description of the ways of life and death. The teaching begins with a reference to Deuteronomy 30:15. See, I set before you today life and death, good and evil. The choice stands before each person. Which way will you live your life? To live toward life or to live toward death? Jesus commands in the Sermon on the Mount, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Moses and Jesus agree that more will choose the way of death over the way of life. Verse 2. Therefore, the way of life is this. First, love God, your creator. Second, your neighbor as yourself. Do not do anything to another you do not wish to happen to you. The way of life is crowned by love of God and neighbor. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. These two great commandments are combined with the golden rule. Redeemed sinners show God's love for sinners to other sinners. That is the way of life. Now verses 3 through 6. And these are the words of this teaching Speak well of those who curse you, pray for your enemies, abstain from your persecutors as a religious exercise. For what sort of grace is it if you love those who love you? Don't the Gentiles also do this? But love those who hate you, do not have enmity, abstain from the desires of the flesh and bodily lust. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the left, and there might be an end. If someone makes you a courier for one mile, go with him too. If someone asks for your garment, give him also your tunic. If someone takes from you what is yours, do not demand it back, for you are no longer able. Give to everyone who asks you, and do not ask back. The Father desires to give his own gifts to everyone. Blessed is the one who gives according to the commandment, for he is innocent. Woe to him who receives, for if a hand has received this, he is innocent. But to the hand who does not have a need, he gives punishment, in order that he might take also from one. Being in anguish, he will be examined concerning what he has done. He will not go out from there until he is handed over the last quadrant. But also concerning this, and to give peace, let your merciful acts sweat in your hand until you know to whom you should give. The teaching of life abounds in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus encourages us through word and example to speak well of those who curse you and pray for your enemies. On the cross, Jesus' first word is a word of forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do he prays for those who drove the nails into his hands he speaks well of them because they do not know what they do he intercedes for his persecutors so that they might one day come to faith this selfless love for the neighbor strengthens and emboldens itself against the lust of the flesh that war against your own soul in this warfare it is not just your soul that becomes a casualty but also your neighbor Understanding the spiritual internal warfare, the teaching continues with the admonition to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, and to give your tunic to the one who asks for your garment. The Christian's selfless love for the neighbor is a giving, sacrificial love. This love gives to those who ask of them because they know that God has lovingly given them everything. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Those who imitate the father's selfless sacrifice of his son are blessed. Those who seek only to receive will receive punishment. Sirach tells us, do good to a godly man and you will be repaid. If not by him, then certainly by the Most High. This punishment is meted out until the last quadrant is handed over and paid off. The final charge of this chapter grants that a Christian sacrificial selfless love can also hold on to their service for a time. If a Christian finds that something he or she has to offer is not needed at some point in time, he has to hold on to his service until the need arises again. This is seen in the apostolic church when property was sold when a Christian fell into great need. This practice finds itself in Israel's civil law in the practice of redeeming property for the next of kin. Withholding the exercise of a gift when there is no need is not a sin. So far the first chapter of the didache, the teaching. Thank you for your time and listening to this podcast. If you'd like to hear more, go back to our archives to hear the previous episodes of Wrestling with Theology, also hear Sunday morning sermons from Redeemer. If you're in the Twin Cities area on Sunday morning, you are welcome to join us at Redeemer Evangelical Lutheran Church at 4201 Regent Avenue North in Robbinsdale, just off of the corner of 42nd Avenue and Highway 100. Just look for Jesus blessing the travelers along the road. Our services are at 9 a.m. We have Bible study at 10.30 following the service with coffee hour in between. We encourage you anytime you are in the area to join us for worship and to wrestle with theology with us. (music)